History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 516th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're doing a location suggested by our listener, Samantha Napier, and that is Joint Base McGuire-Dicks Lakehurst. Most people probably know it commonly as Fort Dix. Before we get into talking about the history and hauntings at this location, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Mandy, Kimberly, Rachel, and Rosita. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Naudity. In the village of Dinosa, Montenegro, there's a unique tree that streams water after heavy rainfalls. Apparently, there is a cavity in the tree that reaches its base, and when groundwater from the local springs increases, the water is forced up through the tree's trunk. After hard rainfalls, it occurs at quite a rapid rate, approximately five feet high from the ground, creating quite a spectacular natural fountain. The species of tree is a mulberry, and it is estimated to be approximately 100 to 150 years old. The rise in the groundwater that helps cause this phenomenon usually occurs in spring or autumn, typically happening once a year. The people of Dinosa have witnessed the tree fountain since the 1990s, Although this isn't the only tree fountain in the world, it is a rare phenomenon which certainly makes it odd. We are aliens taking over this broadcast. Get lost, you little green creeps. And now, this month in history. month of December on the 1st in 1953, Playboy magazine debuted with Marilyn Monroe on the cover. Also known by her given name, Norma Jean, she didn't actually pose for the Sweetheart Centerfold in the inaugural issue, as many people believed. The first issue of the Men's Lifestyle and Entertainment cover read, Marilyn Monroe Nude. Hugh Hefner never paid her a single cent, nor did Marilyn give permission for the then four-year-old photos to be used. As it turns out, the photos were not acquired legally. Back in 1949, Norma Jean needed money to pay her bills. Lacking a job in cash, she posed for Tom Kelly, a pinup photographer. She was paid $50, and the photographer promised that he would make her look unrecognizable. She signed the photo release documents as Mona Monroe. She stated that the reason for her signature and request was, I don't know why, except I may have wanted to protect myself. I was nervous, embarrassed, even ashamed of what I had done, and I did not want my name to appear on that model release. 
Regardless, the photos were sold, and just a year after her photo shoot, Marilyn Monroe started experiencing her breakout success as an actor, appearing in All About Eve, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and so many other films. Playboy's Hugh Hefner quickly tagged along on Monroe's dress tales, as it were. Hefner maximized his investment after purchasing the rights to her photos and using them in his premiere magazine release as the first Playboy sweetheart, later to have the moniker of Playmate of the Month. Sadly, Marilyn was never paid more than the original $50 for her shoot, never received a thank you or any other compensation while many made millions off her photos. Norma Jean was urged to deny that the photos were actually of her, but despite the warnings, she confirmed the photos were indeed her and she stated later that they surprisingly helped her career. Ironically, despite not having any real connection with Marilyn, Hugh Hefner was said to have purchased the burial plot next to her for $75,000 back in 1992, stating that spending eternity next to Marilyn is too sweet to pass up. Joint Base McGuire-Dix Lakehurst in Trenton, New Jersey, is a very unique military base in that it is the only tri-service base in the United States Department of Defense. All six Armed Forces branches have units stationed there. The name is derived from the United States Air Force's McGuire Air Force Base. The United States Army's Fort Dix and the United States Navy's Naval Air Engineering Station Lakehurst. This location was a scene of the horrific crash of the Hindenburg in the 1930s. Several buildings on the base are said to be haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the place most commonly known as Fort Dix. The Lakehurst Naval Air Station is located in Manchester Township in New Jersey. This began as Lakehurst Maxfield Field, which was a test range for ammunition being manufactured for the Armed Land Force of Imperial Russia. This was in 1916. During World War I, the United States Army purchased the field and reopened it as Camp Kendrick. In 1921, the United States Navy purchased the property. The Navy decided to use it as an airship station, and that is when the name changed to Lakehurst Naval Air Station. This would become the center of airship development in the United States. This work would continue until it was deactivated in 1962, which I thought was a long time along. I mean, I know we still have the blimp and everything that goes up in the air, like the Goodyear blimp and stuff. And surprisingly, airship operations were resumed in 2006. In the field behind the large airship hangars is a memorial to a famous disaster that took place here, the Hindenburg Disaster. The LZ-129 Hindenburg was a German rigid airship that carried passengers. This class of airship was named for Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, who was president of Germany from 1925 until his death in 1934. The Hindenburg class were the longest class of dirigibles. The LZ-129 was the largest airship at that time and was designed by the Zeppelin Company, which was named for German airship innovator Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. The airship was a great success and made 10 trips to the United States in 1936. This attracted the attention of American Airlines, and they contracted with the Zeppelin Company to have the Hindenburg shuttle passengers from Lakehurst to Newark for connections to airplane flights. 
On May 6, 1937, the Hindenburg was making a landing at Lakehurst when things went terribly wrong. There had been a storm, so the Hindenburg took a bit of a detour. At 7 p.m., the Hindenburg made its way back to Lakehurst and was coming in for its final approach. The airship was half full with 36 passengers and 61 crew members and running off of highly flammable hydrogen gas. A special flying moor was going to be rigged in which the ship would be winched down to the mooring mast. The Hindenburg made a sharp turn because the ground crew wasn't ready. The wind shifted and another sharp turn was made. Water ballast was dropped and six men were then sent to the bow to trim the airship. Mooring lines were dropped and the port line was over-tightened. And then it seemed as though gas started leaking. There was some static electricity and flames burst out. Eyewitnesses all saw different things, so it's hard to know exactly what happened. The flames spread quickly and the bow lurched upwards and the ship's back broke. The tail crashed to the ground and flames burst from the nose, killing nine crew members. The fire burned for hours. In the end, there were a total of 35 deaths out of 97 people on the airship, including 13 of the 36 passengers and 22 of the 61 crew. Many survivors were badly burned. Herbert Morrison was broadcasting for WLS Radio, and here's part of that famous coverage. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flesh. Get it started. Get it started. It's flying. And it's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just it's, flaming. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just speeding around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people. The fans are out there. It's a, it's, it's a, oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just laying down mass of smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and scream. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I, I, I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. For me, Kelly, it's amazing to listen to a newscaster be that honest about what he is seeing and hearing and that emotional. Yeah. It's such a tragedy. And I really appreciate it because so many times now it's like everybody just does like a stiff upper lip and it's like, I don't mind if you start crying on air and can't believe what's happening. And right. It's human nature to react to something like that. It's amazing that he even was able to go on as long as he did. Exactly. The air station later hosted the U.S. Navy's first helicopter squadrons and today is used for naval aviation programs with two runways that are still in use. Base realignment and closure merged the naval air station with two neighboring military bases. 
One of those was Fort Dix, which started as Camp Dix in 1917 in Wrightstown, New Jersey. This was named in honor of Major General John Adams Dix, who served as Secretary of the Treasury under President Buchanan. He actually had a long list of accomplishments. Dix was a veteran of the War of 1812 and the Civil War, and a former United States Senator and Governor of New York. After May 1918, Dix was used as an embarkation camp and then as a demobilization center. This became one of the largest camps in the Northeast and had a history of mobilizing, training, and demobilizing soldiers. It was renamed Fort Dix in 1939. This was an all-male base until 1978 when the first female recruits entered basic training there. Dix ended its active Army training mission in 1988 due to base realignment and closure commission recommendations. It began a new mission of providing training for Army Reserve and Army National Guard soldiers. McGuire Air Force Base was originally known as Fort Dix Airport. It was established in 1937 in Burlington County near Wrightstown in New Jersey. The airport opened a military aircraft in 1941. Seven years later, on January 13, 1948, the United States Air Force renamed the facility McGuire Air Force Base. This was in honor of Major Thomas Buchanan McGuire, Jr., whom died during World War II in 1945, as he was engaged in an aerial dogfight and giving aid to his wingmen. He was given the Medal of Honor and was a second-place American flying ace of World War II. McGuire Air Force Base became the Air Force's gateway to the east. In 1954, the Military Air Transport Service took over jurisdiction of McGuire Air Force Base, and in 1992, the base became part of the newly reorganized Air Mobility Command. The largest building on Fort Dix had been Walson Army Hospital. We say had been because it was dismantled over years and finally demolished in 2018. The hospital opened on March 15, 1960, named for Brigadier General Charles M. Walson, and had been built to replace the wooden buildings built during World War II. The hospital was two nine-story ward wings and a nine-story service wing with a 500-bed hospital that could be expanded to 1,000 beds. Medicines and messages were whisked to all floors through pneumatic tubes. Interesting that they had that. Kind of like when you're pulling up to make your bank deposit. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I was like, how interesting. It, it feels like it's kind of space age almost to right. have it go through a nine-story building. Surgical facilities included eight fully equipped operating rooms, x-ray, dental, eye, ear, nose, and throat, child care, neuropsychiatric, and therapy clinics, and an emergency operating room was located near the ambulance entrance. Nurses' quarters were completed in 1963, and in June of 1965, a $1.3 million construction program began on a two-story addition for clinics and a one-story air evacuation section. During the realignment of 1992, Walson Army Hospital was transferred to McGuire Air Force Base and was named Walson Air Force Hospital. In April 2001, the hospital was closed, and as we said, it was demolished by 2018. Yeah, and I put that date down because I don't know an exact time that it was, like, it was demolished in this year. 2018. They some, took, some long spans. <laughs> they took a long time to demolish this place and dismantle it. I just know that by 2018, it was no longer there. There are several locations on the base that are reputed to be haunted. One of the main locations was the base medical building or Wasson Hospital when it still stood. 
There were reports of people hearing disembodied voices and the lights turning on and off by themselves. Visitors claimed to see floating orbs and experience sudden temperature drops. The morgue was one of the more haunted areas. At the admittance station on the dental floor, a woman was talking to another employee when she saw a figure float behind the employee and she knew they were the only people there. It floated away and disappeared. Another woman saw an apparition and she ran to a door that shouldn't have been locked and it took several tries before the door would finally open and she could run away. She was terrified. That would suck if you're trying, ah, oh, it's a ghost, <laughs> if you're running, you're like, ah, I can't get out the door. It's stuck. Damien Beeman was a member of the 305th Medical Group at Walson from 1995 to 1997, and he claimed to encounter unexplained things. He said, quote, I worked nights at the primary care clinic. On many occasions, when we would do security checks, the front door that used to be the pharmacy entrance would be unlocked. Even if only an hour ago, it was locked tight. One night, Beeman and a co-worker went to the ninth floor, which was the former psychiatric ward, and they noticed an open window in one of the rooms. Beeman said, At the precise moment Clark closed the windows, the light in the room flickered, turned off, and then came back on. There was also an experience for Beeman when he was exploring the old morgue. He was looking at some pictures there when he heard, quote, The sound of a grown man crying. Ooh, that would be kind of creepy. A little bit. Especially if you're exploring the old morgue. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Username Gridberg wrote, I have a great story from Fort Dix Haunted Hospital. I was stationed at Fort Dix from late 1997 to mid-1999. One summer day in 1998, my friend and I decided to go check out the top five floors. We took the freight elevator because the patient elevator stops after the fourth floor. We went to the ninth, then eighth floor with nothing abnormal. As soon as we stepped off the elevator on the seventh floor, the psych ward, Things got strange. First of all, the temp dropped. Not enough to see our breath, but there was a drop. The lights were flickering like crazy, and my friend's brick walkie-talkie was going crazy. He thought someone was trying to get a hold of him, but no one responded. Then we heard the patient elevators close, and we jumped back in the elevator. We went back to the seventh floor about 45 minutes later, and everything was normal. The lights were lit, and the temp was normal. We checked things out and did not see anything abnormal. There are stories of babies crying, and a real neat story of the floors on the OB floor being freshly mopped. There's a mop and bucket that was left up there, and the floor will be wet, with footsteps across it, and the mop and bucket are dry. Oh my. Now that's very weird. I also worked with a girl, and she was in the back of the lab, and she saw an image of a person walking behind her in the computer screen. When she turned around, no one was there. So, similar to looking in a mirror and seeing something behind you. Yikes. This last is an inquiry. I heard that there was a super soldier being created in the sub-basement. Supposedly, right after the Vietnam War, the basement was quickly cemented in, and to this day there's a crawl space, and the suspended ceiling is still there. I would like more information if someone can find it. The last story is of the morgue. I had keys to the morgue, so we would go down and check things out. The lights never work. They continuously flicker, and you can feel a presence when you lay down in the cooler. <laughs> so, like, they lay down... Tempting fate, are we? Uh, yeah, on the slab. <laughs> we would lay down on the morgue table and be pushed back into the cooler. Oh, no. Not pushing me back in. I might try laying on the slab, but no. I did this only once because I felt like someone was lying next to me. Goodness gracious. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors.
The garden terrace had once been a teen center. A boy aged around 15 years old has been seen walking around the garden terrace, and people know that he isn't human because he fades away. He is usually seen wearing jeans, a blue jean jacket, and a red hat. He has blonde hair. Username Stubbly do right. Hmm, I wonder if they're playing off of Dudley do right. <laughs> One night on a late Friday night, another friend and myself were pulling out of a street, and at the intersection of that street into another, noticed a young man in blue jeans and a blue jacket with a red cap walking across. I remember pointing out to my friend how I thought that the cap didn't go with his outfit. My friend was driving, so when she slowly pulled to a stop after the young man crossed the street we were driving on, I looked at the young man to see if he would turn his head, to see if we were too close. I would have. Anyways, I noticed that he didn't, and I thought that was strange. I then turned my head, where my friend had looked at him, and then she told me she saw him fade away. I didn't think that happened, and said that being dark and woods around the area, he must have ran into the woods. She accepted that explanation, but with reluctance. And of course, then when he later hears about this story that there's reports of this boy that goes way back, he's right. like, oh, maybe he didn't disappear into the woods. The airfield where the Hindenburg crashed and burst into flames is also haunted. The dead were taken to the nearby Hangar 1, which may be one of the reasons why the hangar is said to be haunted. At the airfield, people feel creepy and sad. Some people have claimed to hear disembodied voices shouting, she's a fire outside the hangar. The second deck in the hangar is a place where people have experienced unexplained activity. On one quiet weekend, there was only one person in the hangar and he heard voices coming from a corner of the second deck. He walked over and could clearly make out music and voices speaking a language he believed to be German. They seemed to be coming from the other side of a door, so he opened it and all the noise immediately stopped. The hangar is said to create its own weather conditions sometimes. This I find really weird. Yeah. One time there was a ground mist that was about four feet tall around three o'clock in the morning. There was only one employee in there and he saw two heads bobbing above the mist on the far end of the hangar and it gave him chills and sent him running out. He locked up and went home. <laughs> I would have to. A night watchman was on duty and he heard someone call his name in hangar one. There was no one else there and he saw a figure moving towards him and he noticed that this figure had an ashen face. The spirit called his name again and then walked right through him. Oh, my word. He ran out of the hangar and never returned. So clearly something intelligent if it knew his name. Exactly. But why would it just walk through him? I don't know. I mean, you know, people talk about having that experience in other episodes that we've done where they right. felt something walk through them and they just get this icy cold feeling. So I don't know if it's a... Uh, like they're pulling a prank because they know they can do that and they're going to freak you out? Perhaps. I mean, it definitely seemed like if he called his name twice, he was trying, the spirit was trying to get the man's attention. Maybe he didn't realize that when you walk up to him, maybe it was kind of one of those things where you want to try to grab somebody to get their attention. <laughs> He's like, oops, went right through you. <laughs> yeah. So maybe he was just as shocked that he went right through him, you know, because we don't know. Sometimes these right. spirits don't know that they're dead. And then I also, my brain can go all over the place with these things. Is there some kind of an energy transfer or something? If they go through you, do they get some kind of a energy boost or something like that? Because sometimes people will say when they feel a spirit go through them, especially if they're psychic or something, that they kind of feel drained all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Ghost Hunters visited on Season 5, Episode 26. In the hangar, Dustin Puri was investigating with Britt, and Dustin heard something walk above him. 
They also saw a figure in the hangar in the far right corner where most of the activity is alleged to happen. Chris and Amy investigated in there after them, and they went into some upper offices that the guys didn't go into, and they got a very oppressive feeling in there that caused them fear. Then they felt like something flew over the top of them. A light went off, and the ladies heard noises like a man grunting or clearing his voice. Chris said she had never been that freaked out on an investigation before. Grant and Jason saw a figure that looked like it was going up some stairs, and then they heard what sounded like 15 people making noise together. They called for the figure to come on down, and then they saw the figure look over the railing, and then it was gone. In the medical building, Amy and Chris kept seeing a light turn on and off at the end of the hallway. Well, I love that story of the figure looking over the railing, because this is the second time that I can remember the ghost hunters having some kind of a shadow figure look look over over a railing. St. Augustine. The lighthouse, yeah. So, just interesting. There have been stories that people have seen the Jersey Devil around the base. We've done an episode on this. You and I will eventually probably do a redux on that. Most of these reports came in during World War II. Housing units have reports of weird sightings. One that is called Kennedy Court had residents who reported glowing red eyes that peer at them from nearby woods at night. So is that the Jersey Devil? The trails near the housing units are said to have no wildlife and no sounds are heard. There definitely seems to be some weird stuff going on at this base. Is Joint Base McGuire-Dix Lakehurst haunted? That is for you to decide. And Kelly, while I was doing the research for this, you know, I always go off these little side roads. And I was like, I wonder if there's hauntings that are connected to airships and stuff. And there was this report about a mystery airship that came out in 1896. And there's even an illustration here I'm looking at that was drawn for the San Francisco call on November 22nd, 1896. And it looks a lot like our airships that we have going around, although there's propellers that look like they're on the side too. Hmm. But there were thousands of people across the United States that claimed to observe this mystery airship or phantom airship. These were nighttime sightings, and they usually would see unidentified lights that would kind of go with it. More detailed accounts reported ships that were comparable to a dirigible. And a lot of these reports seem to be a predecessor to what we have now today with UFO reports and flying saucer style things. There were reports of the alleged crewmen and pilots that would describe them as being human looking, although sometimes the crew would claim to be from Mars, which makes me go, were they talking to people? Right. It was popularly believed that the mystery airships were the product of some inventor or genius who was not ready to make knowledge of his creation public. So were these like test runs? Hmm, could be. And of course, a lot of us now think that some quote unquote UFO reports from in the past were just our military running tests and people were seeing it because imagine the first time somebody saw a stealth bomber when we didn't know they existed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You would think, oh, it's a triangular kind of UFO. The first time I saw one, we were actually out at band practice, and it was flying so low and so quietly. It was very unnerving. Oh, I would imagine. I've actually never seen one fly in real life. Oh, really? I've just seen them on TV. Yeah, I don't know if it came from Pendleton or if it came from March Air Force Base or what, but it was very bizarre. (laughs) Most journalists of the period did not seem to take those airship reports very seriously. And it seemed like this was kind of a wave of sightings between 1896 and 1897, and then it kind of went away. But I just thought that was interesting because I'm like, is there something haunting about any kind of airships out there? And I stumbled across that. 
We'd love to have people stumble across our website <laughs> at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or any of our social media out there. Savannah sent us this email. Hey, ladies, I found the stories. I was trying to research something for Magnolia Cemetery. So I went to one of my friends who's a tour guide in Charleston, and he told me the version he knew. And I got another similar story from a historian I work with. So this is the story, and I thought you would find it interesting. It's a pretty cool legend cryptid story from Charleston. It's about a man named Heinrich Carl Ringo. Heinrich has had some historical basis, but as legends get handed down, their story tends to become embellished. He lived in Charleston in the first half of the 19th century. They say he was born sometime in the lifetime of Edgar Allan Poe and expired sometime during the outbreak of the American Civil War. No one is too sure where Heinrich was born, but it's said that he was a very precocious child. There's one story I've heard that he was adopted by the College of Charleston's gatekeeper, and there's one side, which I don't believe at all, that says he was the child of Lavena and John Fisher. But what knowledge we do know, those two never had any children. But the most common story is that Heinrich Rich Ringo was the son of a well-known grocery family, and his parents did very well. His supposed parents were German immigrants who came to Charleston, and no one knows exactly when they arrived. It's been said that Ringo was a very smart boy and displayed a lot of gifts. One of the things that he set his sights on was to become an Anglican priest, and once he had the opportunity, he took the time to start studying and was able to start working with the head priest at St. Philip's Church in Charleston. Some people say Heinrich was a sociopath and had a misplaced empathy, but I don't think that's the case. I think people really didn't understand Heinrich to the fullest. Heinrich was very much, maybe almost hell-bent in helping those who have made it to the other side. So because Heinrich was different from others, that would lead him to trouble and possibly lead to his death. A hurricane came through, and the hurricane had left a lot of floodwaters as it receded. So down on Church Street, some coffins came loose from their plots and started making their way down Church Street, just as Heinrich and the priest of St. Philip's came wading down Church Street with water up to their knees. As the two made the turn onto Church Street, they bumped into two coffins, and the coffins keeled over, and the contents popped out, and the body parts started floating around, and you could still tell who the unliving were. Yeesh. (laughs) The decomposition wasn't quite done yet. Of course, the two men were surprised to encounter this, and as Heinrich looked at the bodies, he turned to the priest and said, If that's the state of the dead, then what will stop them from rising again, and I think I can help them. The priest was shocked by what Ringo said. (laughs) (laughs) How exactly are you going to help them? I'm going to reanimate them. He then told Ringo, Son, until the world rolls backward to judgment, the dead will not return. So Ringo's response back was, Well, not if I have anything to do with that. (laughs) Okay. So after that experience, Heinrich decided to drop out of seminary school. He thought that he would become a lawyer, but then decided to become a doctor. And that's when they started to experiment with all new theories and medicines for diseases. Heinrich still wanted to experiment and find a way to raise the dead. Just like many people in the 1840s and 1850s, Ringo would assist in grave robbing. One place he was said to go to get bodies was Magnolia Cemetery. Magnolia has a receiving tomb, and since embalming wasn't a thing back then, many cemeteries had these receiving tombs to hold the bodies until they were ready for burial. So, of course, Heinrich used that to his benefit to get fresh dead bodies to do his research on. Heinrich lived on King Street in Charleston, and his lab was in the basement of his house. Back in the 1800s through the 1920s, the basement of houses were used for work and business needs and storage needs. One night, Heinrich was at the graveyard in the circular congressional church trying to find bodies, which, of course, we've actually visited. Something horrible happened. Heinrich encountered a spirit of a woman who passed away long before Heinrich was born, and her body was placed in the Hudson family tomb in the back of the graveyard. 
Her name was Angelique Liagree. She was a daughter of one of the Huguenot families. Heinrich began a discourse with the spirit, and every night when he visited the graveyard, he would visit Angelique. It's said that every night they would meet, they would kiss, and that's about all that we know of the encounters and the romance. Okay. <laughs> all right, I don't then. think I want to know anymore about what he's doing with the spirit. As time went on, Heinrich became more in love with Angelique, and the one thing she would always tell him is that she had to go back to her resting place before sunrise, and she could never leave the graveyard. She had told him that if the sunlight ever caught a glimpse of her, she would evaporate forever. I've never heard that about spirits before. Sounds like a vampire. (laughs) One morning, Ringo was laying with Angelique in the family mausoleum, and Ringo, mad in love, couldn't let her go. He held tight onto her, and Angelique did everything she could to get free, and free her spirit from his grasp just so she could get back to her tomb. As the sun rose, the sun rays beamed through the mausoleum and Angelique vanished into thin air as the sun hit her. Heinrich was so beside himself. After his love left him, he turned to the dark arts and black magic and alchemy and consulted with hoodoo witches and doctors. As he was doing his research, he came across something in an old medical text stating that at the base of the spine, every human has an ethereal bone. It's not the butt bone, but it's at the bottom of the spine. It's naked to the blind eye, but you can see it visible to the heart. Now Ringo read that if you can get this bone, you can do magic and you can recreate the body. He wrote a paper on this and presented it to the college, and he got chased out and banished. But he told the students that the medical field needed the dead bodies. Ringo, with no field to work in, started to double down on his experiments. He started to do everything at home, and he still went to graves to dig up bodies. He started to withdraw from society and people started to notice that he was cloaked in a shroud like a black cloak, oversized jacket that looked like it was weighted down by lead that could cover his whole body. And he wore a wide brimmed hat that covered his whole face and had a cane and big shoes and heavy gloves and he would walk hunched over. He didn't want anyone to get a good look at him and he didn't want people to get a good look at his face. Sometimes as people walked by his house on King Street, they would see him on the third floor dancing with a ghostly figure but they noticed that the figure would never move and seemed stiff. Oh, no. What's he (laughs) dancing with? Over time, people noticed that there was an overpowering stench, a smell of death, and they started to notice that young, pretty women would disappear. Oh, no. Children would walk by the house and disappear to never be seen by their parents or families. People started to notice as well that when Heinrich would go to the slave market to purchase slaves that were these beautiful, gorgeous women, these slaves would walk into the house only to never be seen again. The people were slow to connect the dots, but it slowly worked up to a fever pitch, and in the months leading up to secession and in the later months of 1860, the stench of the house grew worse. Merchants moved away from his house and down the street. People would cross the street to avoid the house as they walked by. If people would knock on Ringo's door, he would answer in his cloak and chase them off. People began to wonder what was going on in the house. So one day a mob gathered around the front of the house with cloth over their faces but everyone was determined to see what was happening in that house. They saw that Heinrich was in the house and that he was moving from window to window. The crowd got bigger and bigger, about a hundred strong. And as the crowd got stronger and stronger, they burst through the front door and onto the porch and they could hear Ringo lock the door and the crowd busted through that and then they see him running up the stairs. As soon as the crowd busted through that, they saw body parts and disassembled bodies thrown everywhere. On different tables, they would see women's bodies with mismatched body parts stitched together. Ringo was disassembling women to reassemble them to make the perfect woman to make Angelique Legree. As Ringo ran upstairs, they chased him all the way to the third floor, and then they saw him run out on the third floor piazza. 
Heinrich jumped on the balcony and he turned to the crowd and then he flung off his hat and his coat and revealed that he had transformed into this hideous vulture. His nose was extended into this vulture nose. His hands and feet turned into claws. He had wings. Then the crowd went to reach for him, to turn him in and to get some justice for the disgrace he had done. And Heinrich turned back around, spread his wings and jumped and took to the sky to never be seen again. Now there are reports of sightings of a man who fits the description of the Doctor of the Dead down at the west end of Folly Beach at Bird Key. People have seen him flying among the pelicans, and people say they see him scouring downtown near the market, going from one alley to another looking for fresh, beautiful women victims to take back to his house and pursue his work. This is one of those ghost stories that can inform us on our own fear of our own mortality and our desire to define it and conquer it. I hope you all find this story interesting and unique. Thanks for a great podcast. That's a crazy story. (laughs) Holy cow. It was interesting and unique. Reminds me of the story of Madame LaLaurie in New Orleans and what she supposedly did to her (laughs) slaves there. Pretty horrific. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page. And-